Okay, so this morning, our Advent Psalm, as we have been calling them, is Psalm 80. And initially, it might seem like a counterintuitive place to find ourselves in the Advent season, but it does the job, and it prepares us for the coming of our Lord. And it seems the entire psalm is about Jesus Christ. Very familiar themes. The vine, John 15, the Son of Man, Jesus' favorite title, the right hand of power, where he ascended to when he raised from the grave, all converge here in Psalm 80. And there are more than a few places where our familiar Advent themes uh, come to the surface, but chiefly in the Psalm's threefold cry. And we'll read the last of them in verse 19 of Psalm 80, and it says, O Lord God of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Now, it's primarily in this petition that we'll find ourselves this morning. I'm not going to attempt a full-on exposition of Psalm 80 because our aims are more narrow given the season. However, a brief explanation of what is taking place here um, is in order. So scholars are not certain about the actual historical details of the psalm. The when and the what and the who of the passage remain ambiguous. And though the exact situation cannot be identified historically, the psalmist gives us a vivid picture of what's going on. He compares the nation to a vine, to a vine. It's something quite common in the scriptures, other passages, such as Isaiah 5, uh, Jeremiah 2, Ezekiel 19, and others like them all make similar poetic connections and describe the nation of Israel as a vine that God has planted. Now, the psalmist's vine imagery is used to recount the Exodus narrative. Israel's deliverance from Egypt, and then its entrance into the promised land. If you look at verse 8 up on the screen, the psalmist says, You have removed a vine from Egypt. You have drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground before it, and it took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shadow, and the cedars of God with its bows. It was sending out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. So as the psalmist tells it, God is the vine dresser, or the husbandman. He loved his vine, and so he removed it from unfavorable conditions, and he transplanted it into a fertile land that he had prepared for it. And there his choice vine took root, and as the psalmist describes it, it sent out its tendrils and bows into all the surrounding regions. It covered the mountains and the trees with its shadow. It speaks to the nation's prosperity, to its healthy growth, and to its fruitfulness. And then suddenly, as quick as the vine spread across the region, it's trampled upon. In verse 12, the psalmist turns and says, Why have you broken down its hedges, so that all who pass that way pick its fruit? A boar of the forest eats it away, and whatever moves in the field feeds on it. Israel has become the laughingstock and the derision of the nations around it. 
The psalmist says that its protective hedges have been broken down and its fruit is now devoured by anything that moves. It's a picture of helplessness. It's a picture of destruction and despoilation. And this, the psalmist claims, is the work of God. The vine dresser has forsaken his vine, or so it seems. Why have you broken down its hedges? He clears the nation from any accountability and lays the blame at God's feet. Somehow, in the psalmist's mind, this all goes back to God, a theme we'll return to later. Therefore, the psalmist's request is entirely straightforward. Now, verse 14, O God of hosts, turn again now, we beseech you. Look down from heaven and see and take care of this vine, even the shoot which your right hand has planted, and the son whom you have strengthened for yourself. His plea, the psalmist's plea, is for the vine dresser to return and take care of his vine. It's been trampled and reduced to barrenness. And its only hope is that the one who planted it would return to turn back its enemies and to nurture his vine back to health. And here, the psalm opens to Advent season. The psalmist prayer that God would restore the nation coincides with his prayer that God would cause his hand to be upon, and I quote, the man of your right hand and upon the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Look at verses 16 and 17. It is burned with fire. It is cut down. They perish at the rebuke of your countenance. Then he says, let your hand be upon the man of your right hand, upon the Son of Man, whom you have made strong for yourself. In other words, the deliverance that the psalmist envisions is to come through a particular individual, someone whom he designates the Son of Man, a person at the divine right hand. Now, scholars are in agreement. These titles refer to the nation's king. One scholar put it this way, it should be understood as a plea for a strong leader empowered by God to bring the nation back from the brink of destruction. The vine will be rescued by the vine dresser when he causes a shoot or a branch from among it to rise to prominence. It sounds very familiar, a passage we read during these time, this time, Psalm 11.1. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. So suddenly here in the psalmist's plea, we're in prophetic and messianic territory. The psalmist, whether he recognizes it or not, speaks about Jesus, the Messiah, And our interpretation coincides with the ancient one. In the Targum, which is the Aramaic translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, the phrase in our psalm translated, the Son of Man, there is rendered King Messiah, or Messiah the King. The psalmist may have had a particular historical situation in view, but the Holy Spirit 
has something much larger in view. The advent of Jesus, the King. Now the clincher here is the two phrases used to designate this royal figure. Son of man and the one who is at the divine right hand. When Jesus was interrogated about his identity, just moments before he was tried and condemned and then ultimately sent to the cross, the high priest demanded of him, Matthew 26, verses 63 and 64, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. In those words, Jesus takes the titles mentioned in Psalm 80 and declares that they belong to him. He is the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power who has come from the right hand of power to return to the right hand of power. So whatever this psalm is about in its initial context, which undoubtedly remains mysterious to us, it's also primarily about Jesus in his advent and the deliverance brought about in his death and resurrection. And one more thing. The deliverance that the psalmist cries out for is explicitly connected to the prayer that is repeated three times. Again, verse 19, O Lord God of hosts, restore us, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Salvation, in other words, is synonymous with the shining face of God. When God lifts up his countenance upon his people, the psalmist says, then they will be saved. And now the definitive passage here is the benediction that God commanded the high priest Aaron to pronounce over the children of Israel. Numbers 6, 24 through 26. You're familiar with the passage. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. Now in the scripture's face, which is mentioned some 400 times, denotes presence. It denotes personal presence. God's shining face is nothing other than his grace, his gracious presence among us. So we can sum up the psalmist's prayer something like this. He feels that God has turned away from his people, that he has hidden his face and withdrawn his presence, and subsequently allowed them to be devoured and consumed by their enemies. His one request, the one thing he asked for in this psalm, is that God would turn once again, and that he would cause his face to shine upon his people, that his gracious presence would be felt once more to rescue them. And when the light of God's face shines upon his people so too will the Son of Man, and so too will their long-awaited salvation. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. Now, it's not a coincidence that such themes, namely light, 
shining into darkness and dispelling it run right through the heart of this season. The shepherds were out in the dark Bethlehem night when suddenly an angel of the Lord stood before them and the scripture says, the glory of the Lord shone around them, announcing that Jesus had been born. The magi from the east made their way to Jesus by following his shining star as a beacon in the night sky. And of course, the very familiar prophecy, Isaiah 9-2, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. And of course, this theme of light shining in darkness is no more, no more, nowhere rather more explicit than in the prologue to John's gospel. Jesus, the Apostle John tells us, is the light of men who shines in the darkness and enlightens every man. It's deeply reminiscent of Zechariah's song in Luke 1, in which celebrating the announced salvation, he describes it as the sunrise from on high coming to visit us. If you have an older translation, it reads the day spring from on high coming to visit us. And so if the dark represents sin and despair and unbearable suspicion of forsakenness that God has turned his face, then the light represents its opposite. Grace and glory, the divine presence. The sun, the sunrise from on high shines upon the cold earth, breaking up the icy tundra of sin. But again, the psalmist has taught us not to just expect any light. It's not just any light that we celebrate during this season, but specifically the light of God's face. Cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. That prayer is answered in Jesus. In a remarkable passage, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, hear what the apostle says and how he connects these themes of light to Jesus. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness, is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Put simply, Jesus' face is the light of the glory of God. The face of Jesus is the light of the glory of God. Or more to the point, Jesus' face is the shining face of God. Our Lord Jesus, His face is the shining face of God. You remember Jesus' own words to His disciple Philip in John chapter 14. Almost exasperated, Jesus says, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He's exasperated at Philip's incomprehension. He says this, He who has seen me has seen the Father. Philip asked to see God. Show us the Father and it's enough for us, he says. And little did he know, the answer was literally staring him in the face. He who has seen me. You can imagine them in conversation. 
Philip looking directly at Jesus' face. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Jesus' face is the shining face of God in human form, made visible for all to see. In Jesus' incarnation, the psalmist's prayer is answered. And Jesus' reply is not only to the psalmist and to his disciples, but also us. What does it mean for us to take up the words of Psalm 80 and make them our own? For us to pray that the Lord's countenance would be lifted upon us is to pray for nothing other than to see Jesus. That is our salvation. Jesus, the scripture says, is the light of life. To see him is to live. This is eternal life, that they may know you and or they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. So that prayer, it requires nothing more from us than to simply see this light. Our salvation is to see Jesus' face. And to see in this sense is nothing other than to believe. Faith is another mode of sight. So it's not a matter of accomplishing or doing or undertaking anything on our own part, but rather simply to look on and to believe upon Jesus, the light of the world, to see the light and to come into the light. You guys know this passage, Numbers 21, verses 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard, and it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on the standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. Quite simply, to see, to look upon, to contemplate Jesus is our life and our salvation. Who is, John chapter 3, the bronze serpent lifted in the wilderness? So whatever our personal darkness may be, it can only be expelled by opening our hearts to the light, by gazing upon Jesus. And so once again, as the Psalms so often do, this passage cuts the legs right out from under our aspirations to save ourselves. Human agency is almost eliminated from the picture. As the psalmist tells it, everything depends upon God. He planted the vine. He nurtured it, and surprisingly, he broke down its hedges and allowed it to be devoured, or so the psalmist thinks. He is almost accusatory in his words. You have fed us with the bread of tears and made us drink tears in large measure. What are we to make of the psalmist's brazen attitude? I think we can learn two things, and the first is God's gentleness. The psalmist sidesteps personal responsibility and blames everything on God. It seems like the wrong thing to do, and yet it's recorded in the scriptures as inspired. And it teaches us, if nothing else, that even our most frustrated and bitter prayers are welcomed by God. 
Is the psalmist's prayer impious and lacking reverence? Probably yes. But that's really not the matter. The matter is his heart. Prayer, as we all know, is the heart's communication to God. And so what good is it to express anything to God in prayer but what is in our heart? It's an open book to him. What reason is there to cover it up and to present something untrue? To pretend that our faith has a strength that it clearly doesn't have. Psalm 142, verses 1 and 2, I cry out with my voice to the Lord. I make supplication with my voice to the Lord. Listen, I pour out my complaint before Him. I declare my trouble before Him. The contents of the heart are not something to hide from God. He already knows them. Instead, we bring the hidden things of our hearts into the light, presenting them before Him that He might transform them. And in that sense, we see God's gentleness with us. He receives even these prayers. He knows our frame, Psalm 103, that we are dust. And in my own life, I found that my more deliberately pious prayers go nowhere. They lack the sincerity and honesty most often to even reach heaven. And it's rather my frustrated and exasperated prayers that find a hearing before God. My honest prayer. And I think that's what we find in the psalmist here. Whatever else might be said of what's going on, we can commend him for that. And in the psalmist's complaint, we come, I think, upon the reason for his darkness. It's not that God has finally hidden his face and turned away from his people, but that amidst the destruction and desolation, the psalmist's faith has faltered. John Calvin, in his commentary on this passage, says, In these words, it's intended to teach that we ought not to yield to temptation. Although God should hide his face from us for a time, yea, even though to the eye of sense and reason, he should seem to be alienated from us. For provided he is sought in the confident expectation of his showing mercy, he will become reconciled and receive into his favor those whom he seems to have cast off. So all outward signs for the psalmist and sometimes for us, our own reason and sense, seem to indicate that God has turned from us, that he's hidden his face, that everything is darkness. But that's not faith. God is light, 1 John 1. And in him there is no darkness at all. So if darkness encloses us, it's from the enemy. Whom the Apostle Paul calls the God of this world, who has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. He's the one who works darkness. He's the one who brings shadows and fear and hiding into our life. God's face is always shining. The one who said, let, darkness, let light shine out of darkness is always shining. But only faith can perceive that immaterial light. 
And so it is. The shining face of God is Jesus, but that can only be discerned by faith. To the unbelieving eye, his glory and majesty and the salvation that he brings remain hidden. He's just a teacher. He's just a prophet, this, that, or the other. But to the believing eye, it's manifest. The eye that believes, it can see the glory concealed within the human flesh of Jesus. Faith is sight. And so the psalmist's prayer is answered in the word become flesh, the one who is God's very shining face. But the psalmist's prayer receives a more direct answer in another event, and that's the transfiguration. When Jesus is on the mountain there, and he is transfigured, faith actually becomes sight. So Peter had just confessed Christ, or rather, he just confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of God, and then the text moves and says this. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And note, and his face shone like the sun, and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I will make three tabernacles here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And while he was still speaking, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell down to the ground and were terrified. So it's quite obvious that in one sense, the psalmist's prayer has something to do with Jesus' transfiguration. Cause your face to shine upon us, he prays. And this passage specifically notes Jesus' face. It shone like the sun. So a truth discernible only by faith in the incarnation is here revealed by sight in the transfiguration. Jesus' true nature, his hidden glory, is made plain on the Mount of Transfiguration for his disciples to finally see. Now, other than an obvious connection, the prayer for to see God's shining face, and literally Jesus' shining face, how does the transfiguration relate to our passage? Now, the answer, I think, comes in Jesus' words prior to his transfiguration. Speaking to his disciples, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here will not, who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man, note the phrase, coming in his kingdom. Now, many interpretations have been ventured on this passage, but I think the most obvious is that these words are spoken with reference to the transfiguration. Peter and the sons of thunder, Basil of Caesarea says, saw his beauty on the mountain, more radiant than the very radiance of the sun, and they were found worthy to see with their eyes, listen, the preliminaries of his glorious advent. Something of a preview, the transfiguration is. is. Cyril of Alexander, another church father, says likewise, the kingdom 
he spoke of is the vision of his glory in which he will be seen in that time when he will shine upon all men on earth. So the reason that Jesus' transfiguration is so important to our passage, cause your face to shine upon us and we will be saved, is because the transfiguration prefigures that very salvation. Jesus' shining face anticipates the mysteries of the age to come, when our salvation will be completed at last. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, such an utterance as this was made to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And we ourselves heard this utterance made from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Jesus' transfiguration, the Apostle Peter says, is something of a deposit. It's given in earnest of his glorious return. The apostolic testimony of Jesus' future advent when he would return in glory is not based, Peter says, upon vague rumors or sheer religious fanaticism, but on eyewitness testimony. They had seen his glory. And subsequently, he says, the prophetic word is made more sure. You will not taste death, death until you see the Son of Man in his kingdom, coming in his kingdom. And so the apostles on the Mount of Transfiguration were given an advanced glimpse of the day when Jesus would return in power and majesty to judge the world in righteousness. And so, the true depth behind the psalmist's words, those intended by the Holy Spirit, come to the fore in the Transfiguration. We said that God's shining face and our salvation are synonymous. And that's true. Not only metaphorically, but literally. Jesus' shining face is our salvation, foretold and declared ahead of time. What the apostles had seen on that mountain is what we will see when he returns in glory. David Bentley Hart, he puts it this way. The same light that the three disciples were permitted to see break forth from the body of Christ will, in the fullness of time, enter into and transform all the creation with the glory that the Son had with the Father before the world began and that the whole creation waits waits with groans and longings and travail. The entire universe will be like the burning bush seen by Moses radiant with the fire of God's holiness, but not consumed. And so we leave the mountain and come back down to the valley like the disciples did. They saw Jesus' glory and came back to a demon possession. And so here in the valley, off the top of the mountain, away from the glory of Jesus, we pray, cause your face to shine upon us, and we will be saved. And with Jesus' shining face on that future day comes our salvation. It is our salvation. 
and the light that beams through him will penetrate into us. You are light in the Lord, the apostle says. We too will share in his glory and we will be saved. So what then? Only let's put these words into practice. Colossians chapter 3 verses 2 and 4. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. Listen, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. So Christ is our life. And until he comes in glory, to bring us glory, we're told to set our minds on things above. We live in hope, our lives determined and defined by that coming day. And so as we prepare now to take Holy Communion with one another, let's turn our hearts and minds toward that reality, toward Christ in glory where our life is hidden. And truly, the supper that we're about to take with one another prefigures the coming supper in the kingdom of light. We partake of these elements now in faith. In faith, looking to realities not discernible to our senses. But then, in the kingdom, the veil will be removed and we'll partake face to face. As the apostle says in 1 Corinthians 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I will be fully known. And so because of an unfortunate break of a guitar string. Um, We'll have to do it in silence. So while we wait for the advent of Jesus' shining face, seek it now by faith. And may the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus shine upon our hearts now.